I'm Sahil Desai. I'm Kevin Tidmarsh. And this is Hidden Pomona. Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066 in 1942, two months after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. With this, the military now had the power to ban all people of Japanese ancestry from the West Coast, from Washington down to California and even Southern Arizona. You had to leave everything you knew and go to another state or be shipped off to desolate internment camps in the middle of nowhere, hundreds of miles away. Almost everyone decided to stay and face the camps, and 120,000 people in all were interned. The conditions in the internment camps were appalling. There were no plumbing or cooking facilities. Diseases were rampant, and some camps only gave their prisoners 45 cents a day for food. In the aftermath of the Civil Rights Movement, the former internees would begin to petition their government for reparations. Forty-five years after the fact, Ronald Reagan would sign a bill into law granting $20,000 to all surviving internees, saying that, Here we admit a wrong. Here we reaffirm our commitment as a nation to equal justice under the law. These are some of the stories of the Japanese students at Pomona, when Order 9066 came down. By now, we can accept as historical fact that the Japanese internment happened in the United States, and most can agree that it's one of the darkest periods in American history. But the root causes of exactly why the government so explicitly targeted Japanese Americans can be hard to parse out. So we talked to Pomona history professor Samuel Yamashita. He said that the causes of the internment can be traced back to four distinct historical contexts, starting with the advance of European and American imperialism in the 19th century. But in most of the colonial world, uh, life was highly racialized and a kind of caste system based on race was created. And I, I'm a native of Hawaii, and I was born in 1946 uh, when Hawaii was still a colony. And the public school system in Hawaii was segregated until 1947. And you may know that President Obama went to a certain private school in Honolulu, Punahou, what was called Punahou College, where there were private schools for each of the major ethnic groups. The next context was that of the nation of Japan's aggression, starting in 1931 with the invasion of Manchuria. This led to international outcry and sentiments against Japanese people across the world. The third context was the rise of anti-Japanese sentiment in the U.S., with bans on immigration and property ownership for Japanese-born individuals. 
And so a third somewhat immediate context is very fierce anti-Japanese feeling in California that actually grew out of anti-Chinese feeling that dated from from the 1880s. There had been uh, pretty pretty vicious and fierce anti-Japanese feeling in the U.S., and it was uh, solidified, formalized, one might say, in the Gentleman's Agreement, 1908, uh, which essentially said that there will be no more immigrants except maybe uh, picture brides. And then in 1913 and 1920, first-generation Japanese Americans, that is to say people born in Japan, could not own property. And so what a few of them did was to hand over the property to their children or register the property in their children's names. The final context, Professor Yamashita said, was the emigration of American-born Japanese back to Japan. Now, the last and smallest context is that is what one might call the, the Japanese-American uh, uh, context, which found that young Japanese-Americans who had college degrees could not get jobs in, along the West Coast or in Hawaii. And so a large number of them began to move to Japan, were sent to Japan by their parents for uh, high school, for college, or to work, or to be adopted by relatives, especially those who were college educated. And between 1905 and 1945, there were about 100,000 Japanese Americans living, working, and studying in the Japanese empire. And they were there mainly because their prospects were so much better. And so, you know, if you were a college-educated Japanese-American, you could get a job in the Japanese empire that was commensurate with your abilities. While all of this was happening, Pomona College had started to admit students of Japanese descent from Hawaii. Professor Yamashita's mother was actually among the students who was encouraged to apply to Pomona, although she didn't end up attending. Pomona College began to get students from Hawaii in the 1920s. And they were mostly from McKinley High School, the same high school that my mother went to. And I think some of the educators at McKinley High School were from the West Coast, and they were progressive. And they knew about this place called Pomona College. Almost all of the Japanese-American students at Pomona during the early 1940s came from one of two places. Either they were from Hawaii and they were recruited to come out to school here, or they were natives of the Inland Empire, from places like Riverside or Upland. But in spite of these policies of recruiting Japanese students, especially from Hawaii prep schools, there were very few students of Japanese descent at Pomona, probably less than a dozen at any given time. The Hisanaga siblings were among the few Japanese-American students during the 1940s. There were three in all who ended up attending Pomona, brothers Kazuma and Kazuo, and their sister Atsue. They each ended up graduating with a Pomona degree a year apart from each other, but under vastly different circumstances. Kazuma, or Benny as he was known, was known on campus as a star football player and ended up becoming team captain his senior year. He had the relative fortune of graduating in 1941, the year before the internment order went through. He moved back to Hawaii, and joined the National Guard. But his two younger siblings were still on campus in 1942, 
when a curfew was implemented and restrictions on people of Japanese descent started becoming more serious. Itsua, who went by Sue with their classmates, was the youngest of the three siblings who went to Pomona. She was a member of the choir and enjoyed going to see movies with her classmates. In the aftermath of the attack on Pearl Harbor, when anti-Japanese sentiment in the U.S. was beginning to reach a boiling point, her ability to participate in extracurricular activities and go on outings with her friends was severely limited. Not because the clubs or her friends would no longer have her, but because the government had imposed a curfew on all people of Japanese descent. If they were seen outside between the hours of 8 p.m. and 6 a.m., or if students traveled more than five miles off campus, they could be arrested and prosecuted. This meant that even though Sue lived just a few dozen feet from Little Bridges, where choir practice was being held, she had to stay in her dorm for the risk of being caught outside after rehearsals were finished. Her friends were accommodating, opting to go to earlier movie showings on account of Sue's curfew, but there was only so much they could do. That semester, Sue, her brother, and the other Japanese students on campus were in a state of limbo, not really sure what was going to happen to them next, but knowing that the government had the power to do what they wanted. Then, one April afternoon, Sue was called into the office of Dean of Women, Jesse Gibson. It was official. Sue would have to leave campus or face internment, and soon. Things started moving extremely fast. They had to. The next day, President E. Wilson Lyon had already arranged for Sue to take her final year of classes at Oberlin College in Ohio. Both she and Kazuo, who was known as Casey among his classmates, were allowed to finish the semester despite having to leave the campus a month early. Both Sue and Casey lived on campus at the time, and there was a huge procession to see them off. Hundreds of Pomona students went into the Claremont Village. The band even showed up to play some farewell songs, and Sue dressed up and brought her ukulele to play along. It was a big, emotional moment for the whole student body. But before long, Sue and Casey had to get on the train. She remembered, years later, that it wasn't until she sat down on the train that it hit her exactly what was happening. She was really doing this. She was leaving everything she knew and going to the Midwest. Kobe Shoji's story is a bit different from the Hisanaga siblings. His father had immigrated from Japan, and Kobe grew up not far from campus in Upland. Like the Hisanaga siblings, he was considered a Nisai, the child of Japanese immigrants born on American soil. His dad had a lemon farm, and he would work on the farm and play sports in his free time. He'd always been an athlete ever since he was a kid, especially football and track and field. He applied and got into Chafee College, a community college in San Bernardino, where he was a tailback on the football team. He transferred to Pomona College in the fall of 1941, where he was also a tailback. But he wouldn't even be able to finish out his first year at Pomona before the internment order came through. Sue and Casey managed to avoid the camps, most likely because their family was based out of Hawaii and didn't face internment like West Coast families did. 
all they had to do was get to another part of the country and they'd be spared the indignity. But Kobe was given the extremely difficult choice to transfer to another school out east and leave his family behind, or be rounded up to go into an internment camp for an indefinite period of time. He ended up deciding to go to the camp. Kobe didn't have the send-off that the Hisanaga siblings got when he left Pomona. He was also given credit for the semester's courses when he had to leave early, but his circumstances were a bit different. Even when he attended Pomona, he still lived at home with his parents in Upland, and he was subject to the same evacuation order that everyone else was. Besides, his send-off would have been nowhere near as cheerful as the one the Hisanaga siblings had. After all, they were going to escape the internment camps, but Kobe was going right into them. As he said years later, quote, I said goodbye to my faculty and fellow classmates and just disappeared from the campus. He left with nothing more than he could fit in a suitcase. Kobe went directly to the post and internment camp just across the Arizona border, but other Japanese Americans in the area were rounded up and taken to temporary detention camps called assembly centers that were housed on the grounds of the Pomona Fairplex. You might know the Fairplex as the home of the LA County Fair which has been located there since 1922. These facilities were supposed to confine Japanese Americans until permanent internment camps could be built in more isolated parts of the country. Estelle Ishigo, a white woman who accompanied her Japanese American husband to the camp, later said that, quote, the first sight of the barbed wire enclosure with armed soldiers standing guard as our bus slowly turned in through the gate stunned us. Here was a camp of shed enclosed with a high barbed wire fence with guard towers and soldiers with machine guns. The population of the camp peaked at roughly 5,400 people while it was open for 110 days in the summer of 1942. The conditions at the Pomona camp were brutal. Each inmate just had 73 square feet of living space. There was only one shower for every 22 inmates and one bathroom for every 17. The Japanese Americans in the camp were not given enough food to eat and water samples collected by the LA County Health Department on the campgrounds were heavily contaminated. As temperatures reached over 100 degrees throughout the summer, at least 96 of the inmates had to be taken to the hospital in an ambulance, and another 495 sought medical help. Ishigo later spoke to the Pomona Progress Bulletin newspaper about what she called the humiliating segregation of being in the assembly center, and said that, quote, the people were half hungry and restless, Feet trampled the earth to a deep, fine dust within the fenced area. Finally, in August 1942, the inmates were transferred to the Hart Mountain internment camp in Wyoming, just a few miles east of Yellowstone National Park, where they were held during the war. Sue's last year at Oberlin? was vastly different from what it would have been if she'd stayed in the West. Oberlin had taken in 17 Nisei students from across the West Coast for fall 1942, and they were largely welcomed by the administration and student body. One of the new students actually became the new student body president within a month of his arrival at the school, and it got picked up by the Cleveland Plain Dealer and even Time Magazine. Unlike the previous semester, Sue didn't have to worry about government-imposed curfews, and Japanese-Americans could move freely around Oberlin without fear of being found and sent to a camp. Anti-Japanese sentiment still prevailed across the country, but by most accounts, the Nisei students were welcomed by their white classmates, 
and Sue was able to resume what the US government had nearly prevented her from doing, being a student. When the order came down that he had to leave, Kobe Shoji packed up his suitcase and went on to the camp at Poston. He worked as a teacher, and that's actually where he ended up meeting his wife, Chiz. He didn't pass down much about this period of his life to his kids, but this is what his son Dave had to say. Well, actually, my mom was from Chino, which is just a few miles south of uh, Upland. I think they had heard about each other, but never knew each other, never met each other, but met in the internment camp in Poston, Arizona. And I guess, uh, you know, they're about the same age and obviously they, they fell in love there and uh, were married there. And uh, I guess the rest is history. Poston was one of two camps where most of the inmates came directly from their homes, rather than first being sent to an assembly center in Pomona or elsewhere. Most of the detainees came either from Southern California, like Kobe, or from farming communities in Central California. The Poston camp was the largest in terms of its size and population. When it reached its peak population of about 18,000, Poston actually was the third largest city in Arizona at the time. The area around the camp was so desolate that guard towers were seen as unnecessary. Kobe didn't stay in Poston for long, however. Whether or not they were in the camps, thousands of Japanese-American men wanted to show their loyalty to the country by joining the military, and Kobe was no exception. He ended up becoming a pilot for the famed 442nd Infantry Regiment, a unit made up almost entirely of Japanese Americans, and he got two Purple Hearts for his service. He returned to Pomona in the fall of 1946 to finish his last year of school, and he remembered that his classmates treated him, quote, like nothing happened, except we were all very much more mature due to the wartime experience. We all had the feeling that we must do something to make the world a better place to live. He went back to play on the football team, but the final game of his college career didn't go exactly as planned. He got his front teeth knocked out in the middle of the game, and kept playing. There were no mouth guards back then or anything. He would wear replacement teeth for the rest of his life. Oberlin was where Sue's graduation ceremony took place. Although her degree read Pomona College, to reflect the special arrangement between the two colleges' presidents, President Lyon wrote a letter to be read in absentia at the 1943 graduation ceremony. It read, quote, It is on the part of Pomona and Oberlin an assurance to our loyal Japanese citizens that we believe in democracy and tolerance. 
May the ceremony serve as a pledge of faith and goodwill on the part of American higher education. In Oberlin was where Sue met her husband, Harry Yamaguchi. He was a psychology student from Seattle who was one of the first Japanese American students to enroll at Oberlin. After graduating with Sue in 1943, he served on reserve and active duty in the U.S. Army until the end of the war. And he served as a Japanese language assistant while working towards his psychology PhD at Yale. In 1951, Harry got a job at Indiana University, and he and Sue settled in Bloomington, where they started a family. Harry died in 2002, but Sue still lives in Bloomington to this day. As for Sue's brothers, Benny and Casey, they'd both go on to serve in the war. After Benny came home, he'd meet an Oberlin student named Ichiko Mukai, who was in the same class as Sue and Harry, and they would get married and return to Hawaii, where he'd become a teacher and athletic director at his hometown public high school. Casey also returned to Hawaii, where he would get married, have two daughters, and start a career as a teacher in a public elementary school in Honolulu. Kobe went on to receive a PhD in plant physiology from UCLA in 1950, just three years after he started the graduate program. Upon getting his degree, he moved with his wife to Honolulu, where he taught botany and plant physiology at the University of Hawaii. It didn't end up becoming his profession, but his love for sports got passed down to his three sons. Each of them works in college athletics today, including Dave, who's a coach of the University of Hawaii women's volleyball team. Oh, I don't think there's any doubt that he shaped uh, our lives. Uh, we would go to all kinds of games when we were children. Uh, he put us into just about every youth sport there was over here in the islands, <clears throat> football and basketball, baseball. And he was still um, participating in athletics, and, and we would follow him around. He played softball and was a bowler, and, and um, so he was very active in his, his life after college. And for some reason, we just all gravitated toward athletics. So I think even my mom was, uh, you know, a big fan and would follow us and watch us play. And, and so actually my dad coached us a lot when we were young um, boys, you know, especially in baseball and, and football. So he, he definitely uh, pushed us in that direction. These memories 
are still very difficult for people affected by the internment to reach red, whether or not they actually spent time in the camps. In 1992, Professor Yamashita moderated a panel of Japanese-American Pomona alumni to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the internment order. The panel consisted of Sue Hisanaga, as well as sisters Alice and Mary Ochi, who are from Riverside. Professor Yamashita remembers that Alice, who had been sent off to Poston just months before she was originally supposed to transfer to Pomona, broke down crying when it was her turn to speak. She couldn't get any words out, only tears. All she said about her time at Poston was that life was not easy. Among her only comforts during the time at Poston was the family pet, a Boston Terrier. The sisters would have the same breed of dog for life, training them and even taking them to shows around the country. Today, Mary and Alice live in a nursing home not far from campus, and they still own Boston Terriers. Even today, after reparations have been granted to the surviving Japanese internees, the survivors are still fighting to be recognized. Most of the former sites of internment have plaques commemorating their cruel past. The Pomona Fairplex is one of the few sites that does not, even though a few buildings from the camp are still standing today. But the surviving internees who passed through the Pomona Fairplex have been pushing for recognition. If everything goes according to plan, there will be a plaque on site with the opening of the LA County Fair this September. But whether or not there ends up being a plaque, the poetry of the internees at the Pomona camp will always chronicle their pain and struggle. Here's a haiku written by Satru Suneshi, who passed through the Pomona Fairplex on his way to the Heart Mountain Camp in Wyoming. Stopped abruptly by the fence, a tumbleweed hangs, devoid of its soul. This episode was written, reported, and produced by me, Sahil Desai, and Kevin Tidmarsh. Kevin produced the music. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Medium at Hidden Pomona. Hidden Pomona is recorded in the studios of KSPC. This is our last episode, so thank you for sticking with us. Special thanks to Dave Shoji and Samuel Yamashita for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you to Susan McWilliams, as always, for allowing us to take on this project. If you'd like to know more about the Japanese internment and how it impacted Pomona students, 
we recommend that you check out Holly Byers Ochoa's article, Another Day of Infamy, in the Pomona College Magazine. And again, thank you for listening. I'm Kevin Tidmarsh. I'm Sahil Desai. And this is Hidden Pomona. Hidden Pomona.